0: What's up and welcome to the NYC Video Podcast, a show about the film and video industry here in New York and the pros that are making it happen. I'll be your host, Tom Chavez, and each week I'll be interviewing other New York filmmakers to learn more about their craft, their process, and with a little bit of luck, they'll share some stories and observations of working in production here in New York. We'll also be discussing some of the incredible resources that are available to help us out on our film and video productions. If you haven't already, follow the show on Instagram to see past guests, discussion topics, and be sure to make your voice heard by suggesting future episode ideas.
1: John Sherburn here, producer for the show, and this week is the first of a series of producer picks, episodes that I organize, host, and produce myself, all with the purpose of bringing a new voice in film onto the show. Don't worry, Tom will still be in the studio, but you'll be hearing from me from time to time as well. This week we interview Alden Peters, a filmmaker who has made his name creating award-winning documentaries and short films that all focus on LGBTQ issues. He works as a video editor for multiple news outlets, currently with a recount, and has been a writer, producer, and director for some great bodies of work. His films have been nominated for and won numerous awards at film festivals around the world, and he's a great resource for anyone looking to get into the creative end of filmmaking. Alden's work is exciting because he's involved in one of the fastest-growing and cutting-edge subgenres of film today queer cinema, and even its queer themes in TV and film have made major breakthroughs in recent years thanks to focus from major streaming services like Netflix and HBO. And Alden is creating truly unique work from the ground up locally here in New York City. I'm excited to get into the episode after a quick word from this week's sponsor. Even filmmakers need to eat. When you're on set for 10 to 12 hours, you want something that not only tastes good, but is also good for you. If you're looking for a killer catering service here in New York, check out Alex's Catering. Their menus are 100% organic and they make everything fresh. Alex brings 18 years of culinary experience to the table each and every day, with a wide range of menus to suit any crew's dietary needs. Their comprehensive menus contain impressive selections of American, Thai, Chinese, Mediterranean options, and more. Their online portal allows crew members to easily and quickly make their own selections from their phones, tablets, and computers. You can visit their website at alexamcatering.com. That's A-L-E-S-A-M catering.com or shoot them an email at alexcateringrj at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the show. Hello and welcome. I know I'm not the usual voice you're hearing at the top of the hour. My name is John Sherburn, and I produce everything you're going to see, hear, and read in regards to the podcast. And today is the first of a few episodes that I will be sitting behind the mic for. But don't worry, Tom will still be the voice of the show. Today we're joined by Alden Peters, a director and producer who has created multiple award-winning short films, produced some excellent audio-video content for the web, and is a great example of what an inspiring New York filmmaker looks like. Alden, how are you today? I'm really good. How are you? Pretty good. It's good to have you on. I'm excited for this. Before we get into your background and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff, I want to get kind of a profile on what the work you do now is for the audience. So uh, as a filmmaker and creator, what kind of stuff do you focus on? What pays the bills? What do you like to do? All that.
2: Sure. I work on content from documentary films to news, online web video content um, and uh, narrative films as well. All of it, usually uh, exploring queer themes and queer characters Um, the news stuff is what pays the bills I'm a a video editor and motion graphics artist um, and have been for the last few years at different um, news companies Um, and up until maybe like 2016 I'd been doing mostly primarily documentary work and then uh, transitioned into doing more narrative uh, short stuff which I hadn't done since like film school way back in the day and so yeah
1: that's exciting yeah so um, let's break these things down a little Mm -hmm. bit more so for the the news angle of things what are some of the places you've worked for and what does um i guess a day in the life of that look like for you uh
2: so i've worked at mike at huffpost and now i'm at a company called the recount Mm -hmm. um and i've had various different roles at each of those companies and sometimes very different roles within those companies Um, and so that has Started back in the day of like Facebook video with, you know, the square videos with the text yeah. on screen stuff. So it's just pumping out as much of that as possible. Uh, then into like producing more series and stuff for those companies. Um, then working on an explainer series at HuffPost for a while. And then now at the recount, um, I was part of the, the team of its founding. It was founded by John Heileman, who's a journalist and MSNBC contributor and John Battelle, who co-founded Wired. They co-founded this company called The Recount, and I was part of this first team that was hired. Um, we showed up in a boardroom, and we're like, okay, we want to do news video. What are we going to do? And so we started the company from the ground up, and it's, six, it's since expanded into um, doing, I guess, more or less your typical online journalism hmm. um, video stuff. But I will say, it's pro- of all of... My experiences in you know, web video, it's been run better than, than all the other companies that I've worked at.
1: What general problems are you used to seeing in some of these web video companies that aren't present at the recount?
2: Oh, they don't understand video production, period. They don't know what it takes to go into a piece of video content. I think um, they were used to all of these SEO written articles and video mm-hmm. content was kind of treated the same way that a written article was. Um, but they didn't quite understand the amount of labor that goes into it. So it tended to be a lot of um, upper-level management folks who don't understand any of the process, overpromising. promising uh, That kind of rolled downhill onto the video teams. Uh, burnout was, out, was crazy, and it was just directions of the company that didn't make any sense. And I think none of these companies found a way to make video profitable. Because it's such an expensive endeavor to do it well, and to put mm-hmm. in like the resources and the time to to get folks that can actually uh, make excellent journalism uh, is something that a lot of these online media companies weren't willing to do.
1: And I was gonna say that's the that's the storytelling aspect that is hard to have yeah. non creators kind of kind of get behind the handle on, right?
2: Yeah. Absolutely, and this is like this is the first company that. Uh, where the, the heads from the top down, everybody at least understands what goes into, if we're gonna do a five minute motion graphics explainer, everybody knows what goes into that. So mm-hmm. we can have timelines and expectations uh, met. And and so that's been really refreshing because usually it's, it's crazy absurd deadlines, like finish this 10 minute animated explainer tomorrow.
1: That, that seems like something that's probably going to get easier uh, with time, you're gonna see less of that as the average, you know, age gets younger in some of the higher end management stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I exciting. hope so. Yeah, I mean that's the the goal with our kind of work. I don't know. it's very similar with podcast production, which is what I generally tend to do that pays the bills. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is hard. A lot of times you have bosses that don't understand. Um, Tom's great because he's a filmmaker, so he says like either he knows how to do it and he talks to me through it, or if he doesn't, he says do what you need to do, explain it to me kind of thing. I think a lot of the old school bosses, they're not used to that, right?
2: Yeah, well, I actually like started a podcast with a friend of mine and like former colleague. Mm -hmm. Um, It was called Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. And Evan was somebody that I worked with at Mike. And he does a lot of like really good interviews and he's interested in pop culture. And he was like, hey, do you want to start a podcast together? And I was like, I mean, that's not really my thing, but (laughs) how hard can it be? And boy, did I learn how hard yeah. <laughs> how Larry hard it David is. music starts playing. <laughs> exactly. There, yeah. I was like, you oh. know, there's no video component. It's just audio. So it should be should be half the amount of work, right? But <laughs> that
1: is not... <laughs> yeah, and that's a whole different beast. And I, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about that for a little bit as well. Yeah. Um, in terms of, how, of podcasting, how did that change your view of producing and editing?
2: I'm... Typically a very, I'm like a do-it-myself kind of person, just usually out of budget necessity, but also just my mentality. I actually enjoy learning new skills and and figuring out what goes into part of a process before asking someone else to do it. And so I think that working in like a news environment with video, it, it allowed me to go faster for a lot of different editing and motion graphics um, when doing editing or motion graphics and I think that with the podcast it was such a new frontier that doing it all myself was a horrible mistake because the learning curve of just how the hell to re- why we weren't even doing remotely we were doing uh, in person because this was before the pandemic at first but like how to get like good quality audio how to get it all edited and like all of the normal editing that I would do via video, just like the cadence is different when there's no video component along with it. All of that kind of stuff was driving me crazy. Plus the putting out an episode every week was nuts.
1: Got to do them beforehand (laughs) as much as you can. Yeah. So that was definitely a
2: lesson of like, okay, we, this is an endeavor that must have a team. Otherwise this is not sustainable.
1: And is that, that's, uh, are you, do you still, you said you former colleagues, you guys, did you end the podcast? Did you step away? Is that the reason behind it or?
2: I stepped away. So we did a first, a first season and I was like, look, I can't, I can't do this. Um, it was, it was like a, a a hustle, a second side hustle. So there was like the day job, there's the independent film, like side hustle. And then this was like a third tier side hustle that was, uh, just, affecting the affecting the other two and and i had this film that was um starting in its pre-production process and was moving forward and i was like look i can't do i can't do the second season
1: and uh, that's a very that's the that's a very um adult filmmaking perspective everyone has to get to that point at some point where you're like i have to say no you know? yeah know <laughs> uh, i think that's like you know we have that the grind where you want to just do as much as possible but there's a there's a limit to how many different directions you can stretch yourself in. I'd love. I want to get. I mean, obviously, the focus of this is going to be on your work on on those films mm-hmm. and, and the kind of stuff you do here in New York. But I want to ask first how you got into it. So, yeah. um, you know, uh, as a child or a young adult, how, what got you into film and video as a as a start? So, I
2: grew up in Washington State, just outside of Seattle. Um, and as a really young kid, my dad always had a camcorder, like a VHS camcorder, mm-hmm. around the house, and anytime family got together um, that camcorder was would always be out and um, also like my grandma had one so like wow we would like make <laughs> tapes and then like mail them to each other
1: oh that's cute I like that. that's good that's good
2: which I actually didn't find out and we'll talk probably talk about this documentary I did called coming out where I like yes I digitized all of my the home video um, cassette tapes that we had and that's when I was like wait a minute These were being sent back and forth and all of the home videos were like, hi, grandma, because it was all being sent to grandma. But anyway, at some point I picked up that camera and loved it. So I would carry around this as soon as I was big enough to like carry it over my shoulder, would go around and just film my family as we were hanging out Christmases, holidays, vacations, things like that. Um, and that's where I just started like making videos and that just kind of grew and grew until I was like around in high school um, I would make videos. I would watch video copilot tutorials like Andrew Kramer's After Effects tutorials and basically would just constantly try to pitch my teachers like hey instead of writing this paper or doing this final project Can I do a video instead? And just like every opportunity that I could, would just try to create a, a piece of video. That's
1: that, and that's that's the hallmark that I always want to be making something—the playing with your hands kind of concept that mm-hmm. I think all filmmakers have in common. That's the one thing every, whether you're, yeah, you know, a gaffer and you're just messing on the lights, whatever it is. I feel like everyone has that. I want to do something with my hands. Oh yeah, uh, can't, you know? can't help it. It's uncontrollable. No, yeah. like, no, I just
2: <laughs> yeah. must be working on something, or I will just die or something.
1: Yeah, do you remember your uh, what your first video you were ever really proud of was? That first, like, oh my gosh, I could do this moment? Do you have one of those? Or That's a really good
2: question. I think that, like, I got so much satisfaction learning After Effects because I loved the idea of kind of, like, tricking people, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. oh, like, making someone fly or... I don't know, doing an effect and and having it be convincing or like, oh, I bet you didn't even realize like that was in front of a green screen and that background was fake. Like those types of things I found such joy in as I was kind of teaching myself these skills just by practicing with a camera and, uh, and a laptop. And I don't, I think that maybe the first thing that I was like the most, most proud of was we had like school news in high school. And um, I did this whole series that was, like, based on Heroes, the TV show on NBC. Oh, yeah. Loved that
1: show. (laughs) Uh, And,
2: like, people flying and stuff. And, um, like, the whole school watched it. And it played over just, like, three days. It was, like, three episodes. Uh, But there's all these effects and stuff. And, like, people around the school were talking about it. And that was awesome to me because no one knew who I was um, except for that I played Siler in that, in those things. And so one person in the hallway was like, oh, that's that creepy guy from the the things we saw on the news. And I think that was probably one of the first times that solidified like, oh, I can make this cool shit and people can see it and be impressed by it. And I was already hooked by then, but I think uh, by then I was like, this is, there's nothing else I I would like to do.
1: Well, I want to get into then i want to just transition into your sure. your how this affects the view right of documentary filmmaking there's a big difference i think narrative film gets a lot of um respect because there's so much elements of creativity that go into it and it's the money maker right the mm-hmm. one that people want to go escape their lives and i think doc has a much different impact and oh, what yeah. you're seeing though is that it can have in my opinion it can have an even greater impact in certain ways and i want oh, yeah. to talk to you about that what are the differences between you've worked with narrative you've worked with documentary and what are the differences and why do you prefer one to the other if, if you prefer how do you prefer
2: there i like i liken it to making a documentary is like sculpting something from marble, where you're slowly mm. chipping away at it and a narrative is like building something out of bricks and they're very there's pluses and minuses to both of them, and I enjoy the process of both. Um, I think that there is a really fun discovery when you're um, making a documentary, whether it happens during production, normally it'll be somewhere in the edit when you have your uh, endless (laughs) hours of footage, where you start to, like... the story reveals itself to you, like the actual story that you filmed, Mm -hmm. not necessarily what you set out to do. I think that is so magical once you can find that and once you lock into that and then, like, go to the finish line with that. Um, I also think that the editing of the documentary is, I mean, I don't think, the editing of a documentary is writing. And that's one thing that I learned, too, is that, you know, I was so drawn back in film school to screenwriting and documentary production because both of them were writing skills. One was just writing ahead of time and one was writing afterwards with words that were already said. And I was just taking that and making the script in, in the timeline, the Final Cut Pro timeline back then, um, versus, like, doing it on the page. And narrative is such a different animal It's so liberating to be able (laughs) to do whatever you want, but the amount of, like, moving pieces and money, I don't know... I don't think that I have a preference for either one. They both have perks. I'm right now in, like, the part of pre-production where things are just, like, a nightmare, where it's, like, everybody has started, like, okay, we're ready to go, and everybody's sprinting, and now it's, like, everybody's sprinting at the same time, and everybody's trying to coordinate, and, like oh, you didn't let us know you were doing this. Now this thing needs to adjust and like the clock is ticking and we only have so much time before production. So I think I'm, my current opinion is a little biased because <laughs> I'm in the stressful part of it. Um, but I also think that like the process of like working with actors, working with a crew and just kind of like creating something together is um, is very, very magical. In a similar way that I think working with, a real person is when you're doing a documentary where um, you're kind of just crafting the story on camera together. The project that I'm working on now, and we can talk about it later too, but like it involves like some visual effects and doing these things that I also really enjoy. So part of it is like, I'm really like geeking out on, you know, just the fact that we're doing a whole green screen studio day where I know that, you know, talk to me in six weeks and I'm, will be cursing I'm sure with like, all of the visual effects work that is going to be on my plate. Uh, but for now it's just like it's so exciting to be able to create I guess it's like create something from nothing and and have somebody watch some watch the film, get absorbed in the story and the characters and at the end just kind of be like, "Haha, it was fake." And like we tricked <laughs> you the whole time and like there's that kind of aspect to it that I think still very much appeals to me. I also just, like, enjoy watching, like, science fiction and, uh, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, anything Marvel, all of those kinds of things. Um, so I just like making cool things, and I think that, we're, like, being at NYU, which is very much this, like, indie film mindset, uh, it wasn't so much about, like, cool, like, snazzy stuff. It was more about, like smoking a cigarette and like talking about the art. And so I kind of like was doing this documentary route, was in news for, have been working in news. And up until recently when I had this epiphany with the podcast, after the podcast, when I left that, I was like, okay, I want to make something that's just kind of cool that I want to see that involves visual effects, that involves like genre stuff, but also can tell an important queer story that's important to me personally.
1: Yeah, I think the your the, the queer cinema kind of spin that a lot of your work has is obviously very important and, and it's very new. It's like the newest kind of genre of filmmaking that's in, in some way getting popular as opposed to just being in a small audience's yeah. uh, eyeballs, you know? Um, and so given uh, your experiences there, how has queer cinema, LGBTQ films, how have they changed? How has... Just filmmaking in general changed, and, and, and what about that is exciting and interesting to you?
2: I remember when I was working on Coming Out, and this mm-hmm. was back in 2010, 11-ish. And um, so what is that, 10 years ago? Sure, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> don't think about that. Keep going. <laughs> so it was like a decade ago, and I was talking to a friend and was talking about this idea of like, hey... First, I came out to them and then was like, I want to make this documentary. And I remember they were like, do you really want your first like film to be a gay film? Because then you're going to be known as a gay filmmaker. And I had to think really long and hard about that and think like, oh, they're right. Do I want to be seen as a gay filmmaker? Do I want that to be like a label that's attached to me um, with all of its connotations good and bad yes but now like you say it's like people are like it's all over the place and i'm like hello netflix hbo call me yes. uh,
1: if you're I, listening netflix hbo <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> whereas like it's really awesome because i think that there is um so much opportunity for new types of stories and um the future of it is just more 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 which is great and not at like the exclusion of other voices. But I think what's interesting is like the new perspectives that happen. So for example, on this film that I'm working on, we hired, um, it's a queer film. Um, we have scenes of intimacy and we brought on this intimacy coordinator mm-hmm. and they were just talking about, um, ways of depicting intimacy, queer intimacy, the lens through which we're watching it. And, um, there was also like this sci-fi kind of like spin to it, but the connotations there. And me, one of the actors, we kind of had just sort of like defaulted to like something like gay, like we've seen. And this intimacy coordinator just like blew our minds with other directions we could possibly take that scene. And I think that the film is going to be drastically different and much more improved because of that alone and and ways that can feel very like new and fresh and super exciting and things that I have never seen before um, are gonna be in this film. And this is just like one instance of one person on the team sharing their, their thoughts on this one type of scene. And I think if you extrapolate through all levels of the creative process, it's not just about having a gay character, um, it's not just about having a gay storyline. It's about having the people on the team that can change your perspective and, and, and throw the project in a new, better, more interesting direction than what we all, uh, where we all are based on what we've seen before. And I think that that's the future of hopefully, knock on wood with, with more folks in general in, in all types of film. Um, but that's what I find very very exciting
1: I think whenever you're in a you could call it a you know sometimes people find themselves in an area of film that's kind of cutting edge right like that's mm-hmm. the the focus is starting to be on that area but it's still very accessible mm-hmm. and those are the moments where you have the ability to explore new concepts as opposed mm-hmm. to chasing ones that have been established And I think that's Kind of where we are in the last just like two three years even the amount of stuff that you say Netflix HBO have come out with that is mm-hmm. through the queer cinema mindset or whatever and just the opportunities that it gives you to explore new mm-hmm. concepts intriguing ones that have not been made yet and that as a filmmaker is just that's a good reason to you know to pursue some of the stuff you're talking about.
2: A hundred percent. The community itself is so vast and so mm-hmm. nuanced and and. Within it, there are multiple like communities. And so I think even when we think of like queer cinema, one of the first things that we think about is like gay characters or lesbian characters. Mm -hmm. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of like how much um, there is to explore just with this community. And I think we're finally at a time where we're much more explicitly, um, hopefully like the follow through happens, but we're much more explicitly more intentional about finding all of these vast, rich communities that have multiple kinds of stories to tell.
1: Yes, I want to get into some of the technical um, questions that I have for you as a director. And just for, you know, for some of your peers to look at and have, you know, different opinions, for young filmmakers to look at for, uh, you know, advice and ideas. And so you've directed a few different projects and you've directed, like, we've talked in detail about docs, the narratives. Um, through all of those things, what are the similarities and differences you've found? Throw away the style, throw away the theme, as a director, what are the most important new lessons you've learned that you take with you to each project, you know, teach shoot day even?
2: You know, I think that that changes with each project. I mm-hmm. think every project is about, uh, uh, usually a big lesson is learned, and for me, it's something that I feel like I could have done better. And so I focus on doing that for the next one, and then a new lesson presents itself. And so this project that I'm working on now, I'm really focusing on making sure everybody on set feels joy. And it's going to be, you know, long hours and it's stressful and all of those things, we know that. But but not at the sake of sucking the joy of that creative experience um, from the shoot because uh, I ended a shoot once a while ago and I just remember that... I was directing it, and uh, somebody had said, you know, oh, because of some things that happened on set, someone said, like, oh, I just felt like the joy was sucked from this project, and I felt awful because even though it was two people that just didn't get along, that how would I have known that they didn't, they would have been such a mismatch? At the end of the day, it was my set, and I felt responsible for that, and I felt like the fallout of of that over the course of the production affected everybody, and so. I think that's what I'm currently focusing on. What that looks like is getting to know everybody ahead of time and um, every member of the crew, all the cast members, um, having like Zoom calls with them and just chatting with them so that once we get to set, like we all know each other. We've already sort of worked through some stuff um, as opposed to the experience of meeting an actor for the first time on the day and trying to figure out suddenly like where is... Where's the, our reference point for how we can like shorthand talk to each other? How can we talk about the scene and make those adjustments? Um, but now the clock is ticking because we're on set. So focusing on doing a lot of that stuff ahead of time. Um, I, I think that the other thing that I found invaluable is learning as much as possible and doing all of the jobs that everybody else does, having done it documentary work and yes. news work it's like you're forced to do that you're forced to shoot you're forced to edit you're forced to produce you're forced to interview all at the same time and you have to gaff um and i think that <laughs> knowing generally what is involved in all of those processes i think helps plan and communicate with your team um i think also like being an editor and sort of working backwards is the most helpful so As an editor, I know when I get a project that um, could have done better uh, in production, and so you learn lessons there for, okay, what are the things that I need during production for the edit? And then from there, you think, okay, what do I need to put in the script to make sure I have everything during production for the edit? Um, And sort of working backwards and forth across the whole spectrum of of the life of a film um, has been, for me, I think the most valuable... Um, part of directing, because I see directing as being uh, just like a shepherd, really, and sort of like you're the one that's kind of herding the flock in the direction that you see, and you might, the flock might veer left or right, and you have to be okay with that as long as you're like, sort of like going in the right direction, and I think that you only know how to herd the sheep if you know what the sheep are doing. I guess. Yes. <laughs> it might be, I don't know if that was deep or stupid, but... <laughs> Regardless, I like the image yeah.
1: that I got. Um, and that, what you're talking about is really exciting to hear because I'm hearing more of that recently. I think film burnout has gotten really super common. I Even just with this podcast alone, I, we've heard a lot of people say, people themselves, people they know, just, I, I can't do it. I don't want to be doing this after I'm 40. right? I have to do something else. This is too much. The 12-hour shoot days the low pay, whatever it is, a lot of people are having trouble. And we did an episode with Becky Morrison, and I don't know if you've worked with her. She's a producer for a company called The Light. Oh, Uh, yeah. I
2: actually was listening to that one uh, yesterday.
1: She's really nice, really sweet. She was great. I was like, oh, my God,
2: can I I give you my application? She was great.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she's someone you want to work with because she's one of those people that cares about each person, like the... the the PA sitting in the office all the way up to herself all equally matter and their voices and their feelings. And that's very new filmmaking concept, you know? Oh,
2: I loved, I I loved her. Um, I'm, I'm took inspiration from that. So she talked about everybody wearing name tags. So I'm going to like make sure that happens with our set. And then also I love the idea of having faces on a call sheet so you can Mm -hmm. put a face to a name. Um, I can see, I, I know that she said that some people were like, what is this? <laughs> and I can see that. But, yes. I, but I also think that like you can do a version of that, which is like, okay, on the day of, like we're going to circle up everybody and it's like everybody's going to be introduced around the circle and it's just so we know who each other are and it's not just some stranger that you keep passing. Yes. And you're like, oh, I know they're in art department, but who are they?
1: Yes, and I I think that's, you have to ride the line between making people feel the good thing, right? Making people feel heard and seen and like they're not just a person on the set, Mm -hmm. but not making it feel too much like the icebreaker first day of class thing. (laughs) Well, funny story though, funny story. So
2: I actually, out of college, I worked at a summer camp uh, multiple years in a row. It was like a a summer camp in Manhattan for uh, rich and celebrity children. But they oh. had a full video and photo team documenting everything that the summer camp did. And we were oh. editing like video montages so that the parents could watch what the
1: the kids were doing. Like Big um, Brother. Like like the show Big Brother. Yeah.
2: It was it was like it was kind of cute, but it was also just like, whoa, this is a whole nother tax bracket. Um yeah. <laughs> though I can say um, Sophia Coppola has seen my work because she saw the montage I did of her five-year-old and all the other five-year-olds is. at summer camp one day. Where I was like, holy shit, the end of summer camp, the parents come and watch the final montage, and I was like, huh, Sophia Coppola is watching is watching my work. This is not how I thought that would happen.
1: That's your new movie title, right? But, <laughs> so right. Friend of Sophia. It so- It's actually about Sophia's. <laughs> it's Coppola. about your journey. <laughs>
2: um, but we all everybody that worked at the summer camp had to do pre-camp icebreaker stuff which basically was summer camp and who especially the photo video team it was like we were the ones like there's like happy camp counselors yay they're teachers in there during the school year and this is their summer job and the photo and video team were like all wearing black and just like do we really have to do this yes
1: um in true form like when in high school was happening yeah exactly film kids are not the ones you want to do icebreaker challenges with.
2: (laughs) but i will say it actually does make a big difference. And as uncomfortable as it it always was, and as much as I hated it, I do appreciate what it did for breaking the ice in terms of like getting to know the people that you're around sort of, and seeing the people Mm -hmm. you're around as people and knowing their laugh and um, things like that, I think are actually like very helpful, even though it does make, it simultaneously makes you wanna roll your eyes but is also
1: like super super helpful. You're We're just cringing, kids at the end yeah. Of the you, you it makes you cringe, but you're cringing alongside your teammates. So exactly. there's a there's a bonding level to the it. The
2: bond the bo- you bond in the cringe.
1: Yes, that's good. I um, so I want to move into your current project in a second here to kind of wrap up, but first I'd like to talk about distribution because I think that's yep. something a lot of people don't know how to do till they're doing it and that's not a good time to learn. <sighs> and so when it comes to, you know, say I am I've made my first short yep. film, you know, I don't have any investors. It's a very small project, mm-hmm. right? And I want to pitch it to and try to get it whether it's um, you know put into film fests or even after that, you know, distributed like I think you have something on Prime or you just had you have one yep. of your fam is on Prime or something like that. And so in terms of distribution on to, you know, distributing it to film festivals and then also distributing it with a major, you know, package, how does that work? How does that go down for the people who haven't done it before?
2: Yeah. So I have, for context, for people listening, it's like I did a feature documentary coming out. That one um, started at that Doc Utah Film Festival and then ended up just playing at festivals like around the world and started winning awards. And... Um, that got picked up for distribution by Wolf, and uh, they are like a big LGBTQ film distributor. Um, and that's currently on Amazon Prime, so you can watch it there. Um, it also recently, I started putting clips on TikTok and it went nuts. And so we just like quadrupled the amount of views it's been getting. That's, I, uh, I could talk for an hour about that distribution deal alone. Um, Femme, which was a short comedy I did, um, is on a site called Reverie. It's an LGBTQ streaming service. I think that you can watch it for free if you choose like the ad-supported account, but it's possible that they might have recently put it behind a paywall. Regardless, there's like, it was supposed to be like free on their website, and it was for a little bit of time. Um, and that also did a, a really great festival circuit, um, played at like 40 around the world and won some awards. And then, um, and got a ton of press, a ton of press. And then uh, I did a proof of concept for a queer sci-fi short called Friend of Sophia, which is currently in its festival circuit um, and is playing, uh, it's played at like four and is in two or three more coming up in the next couple months, so. Um, Up until coming out, um, I hadn't really like finished a film, except actually one of my student documentaries played at like Doc NYC, there was like a student block there but the, I had no, I was using like licensed material and stuff like that. And like that got like copyright infringement on YouTube years ago. So, um, that will never be seen, but coming out was like the first film that I finished. And, uh, it took five years of just planning little shoot by shoot. The edit took forever. Um, there were so many things to consider that, uh, I didn't realize. The thing about the, Distribution deal is like, I remember I talked to another producer friend of mine who was like, "Wolf, good luck with those deliverables. I hear that's tough." And the list of deliverables is like a like size eight PDF full of things that you need. And um, as long if you've worked in post production and you're used to like delivering stuff, that wasn't really that wasn't really so scary because it's like, oh, that's just those are the specs you need. But then there were other things like errors and omissions insurance, which is an insurance policy against any type of lawsuit that if somebody wanted to sue you. And that involved multiple pieces. So there was like making sure you have all your releases signed. Um, There was also making sure you've gone through a lawyer to um, have a letter about fair use for any copyrighted material. And um, the policy itself was like $5,000, which I... Um, was not ready for. I think the other part of the whole um, distribution deal was the way that payments were given. So I was expecting to be rich and that was not the case because it was like the payments were split up into small little chunks upon signing. And the problem was like the fee that they paid was like covering the cost of the deliverables. So like it ended up netting out kind of even um, which I wasn't really ready for, and then that minimum guarantee that they give you, um, they have to make that back plus all of the, like, advertising costs before you have your profit splits um, in that deal. So um, all that to say is that it was—it's definitely not, has not been profitable um, by any stretch of the imagination. They still have to make back a ton of money before, um, before there's any kind of revenue split. I think that it's also the lesson that I learned from that distribution deal was that uh, a thing that I've really sort of um, processed more lately, which is like, no one's gonna come up and save you. No one's gonna show up with a check and say, oh my God, you're incredible. Can we give you money to do something? Like the hustle doesn't end. And I think that like, even if like your deal gets bigger, I've like, you still are hustling. It's just the hustle like looks a little different um, and it's like hustling to like at a different level but um, making sure that every project you work on, this is what I tell myself is making sure every project I work on um, I'm in it for the long haul and so that I can make sure that I don't give up on the project or get too tired and make sure that I'm like sustaining myself for um,
1: a continued hustle mentality. Our content creators have to create content. That's what you sign up for. You don't get to stop. You know what I mean? There's not for most people. There's not the big break. And even if you have the big break, it's you only get more money if you keep creating content. That's the whole. These day. days, especially, it's yes. like it's
2: all about volume now. And I feel like yes. I feel like the film industry and like TV and with all these streaming services, it's becoming so much like what drove me crazy about working in news, which was that the values were different and. Uh, news, the value is volume and speed. And it's how much, how fast can you get this done? And can you do three of them? And it didn't matter how good it was by any kind of technical metric. Um, There were journalistic metrics of good for sure. But in terms of like our craft, did not matter whatsoever. Audio's peaking, choppy edits, like, awful spices they don't care <laughs> they don't give a shit um and, and it was just about more 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 and then suddenly it's like that's kind of becoming the value add for the streaming service which is just more 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 um case in point netflix mm-hmm. um, who i would happily work for any day if they're listening but it's like eventually at a certain point they're just producing more and more and more content that becomes a little less and less and less unique
1: Yes, I agree, uh, and I guess so. Before uh, we're gonna finish with the resources, um, before then, quickly, if there's uh, if you want to say anything more about what you think the future of this industry is, what do you think is on the horizon next? Um, it's hard to guess. It's everything's yeah. changing every two three years it seems. But um, if you have any opinions on whether it's as a director, as a writer, as a as a, as a news guy, in general, what do you think is gonna be? on the horizon for young filmmakers to strap in for, you know, ways people should be trying to, you know, learn differently, et cetera.
2: The thing that I'm most excited about is like Unreal Engine and their like um, real-time rendering and of like for the virtual sets, like the Mandalorian used um, stuff like that. So like that whole technology to me is super exciting because um, I checked out an LED wall when we were looking for places to shoot this project that I'm working on. It was way too expensive, but seeing the technology in person was just like, oh my god, this is cool. And um, the last few years, last couple years now, I've been learning um, 3D software uh, because I think also uh, these are gonna connect, but I think in, in in the day job world where I'm an editor for these companies, um, once upon a time, if you were an editor who knew After Effects, you were a unicorn, and you could do graphics, and that was incredible, and now that's becoming the norm. And so I was kind of looking around as it became more the norm, and like more and more editors were having to learn how to do graphics, and I was like, oh shit, I need to up my game um, if I'm going to try to like stay competitive. So I was like, where is that new threshold? It's going to be 3D software. And so I started learning Blender just because it was free. And needed to literally watch tutorials for how to navigate the interface. It was such a steep learning curve for about a year. Um, and then finally started to uh, uh, be able to pull stuff off. Um, but that was also timed with seeing all of this like Unreal Engine 3D rendering stuff. And I think that the kind of like confluence of those industries of the post visual effects world and production. Uh, And video games, I think everything feels like it's all kind of merging together, whether it's gaming, streaming, editing, like all of that stuff feels like it's becoming, I don't know what is it's going to look like in the future, but it seems to be somewhere in that Venn diagram. That's where like the black hole is that's sucking everything in. Um, And I think it's exciting. It's really cool as somebody who now like has like a really beginner's level of 3D visual effects Um, to see that the opportunities of using that ahead of time during production instead of um, like doing this green screen studio day that we're doing, like if we could do that all in front of an LED screen, um, that to me is so, it's so exciting. But that's also, there's like the learning curve and also um, the financial barrier to that kind of stuff where now you can, with most softwares, you can like do green screen. Like we've all been able to do green screen stuff for quite a while, um, but now there's like this new threshold where it's like, oh, that's what the pros are doing. It's no longer like, oh, we can do what the pros do. It's like, oh shit, they've, uh, we've got to have money for that. But, um, somewhere in that world, I'm I'm really excited for what that means for different types of storytelling. Um, for me personally and as like a director, who, you know, I just am trying to like hustle each project and we'll see what happens. It feels sometimes like, when, when thinking about directing, um, it's, you know, a decades long pursuit to get to where you want to be. You know what I mean? It's not going to, it's not like a quick, uh, it's not a quick, a quick journey, but then it's also like a decades long pursuit toward a target that's moving that feels a little worrisome where it's like, Oh, if you're is (laughs) what type of director is going to be the director that's needed for the future. Yes. And is it somebody with a multifaceted skill set? Boy, I hope so. Um, or like I don't know. That's that. That's kind of like the 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 question mark that I have about the future is like, is am I building up the skill set that is going to serve me at some point in the future once I've put in the decades amount of work that's necessary for me to kind of make the stuff that I that I really want to do.
1: That's great. Um, so, you know, we're reaching our, our, our cap here. So um, before we go, I want to ask just if there's any local resources that you want to highlight right now. Anything that you want to say, hey, if you're in New York, please use these guys, whether it's for post-production, pre-production, getting what, whatever it is. Um, who has helped you make your films possible?
2: Resources in the city that I um, have always found helpful have been... Um, fiscal sponsors for 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 various films. There's IFP, which is now called the Gotham. I interned at IFP uh, back. That was like my, my first internship. Mm-hmm. Um, but their like support and the opportunities that they have once they're like fiscally sponsoring your project is really helpful for like grant money and resources and like the community there. Um, they had the Maiden media made New York Media Center there for a while, but COVID mm-hmm. shut that down. Um, um, I'm using Fractured Atlas right now as a fiscal sponsor, and they're great because um, they also provide re- like access to their nonprofit status in multiple ways. So for example, recently, just today, I went to the um, TDF Costume Collection, that's the Theater Development Fund. Um, and so they're based in Kaufman Astoria Studios, and they have a massive warehouse of theater costumes that you can rent, and if you're a nonprofit, um, it's super cheap for one outfit, and one outfit is as many things as you can collect and conceivably one person can wear from head to toe. Um, but because of we have Fractured Atlas as a fiscal sponsor, we can go through them as a fiscal sponsor to the te- uh, Theater Development Fund, so we get nonprofit pricing for these costumes, and literally me and the costume designer were there this morning um, collecting some stuff for this film that I'm working on. Um so I would say Fracture Atlas for sure. That's also the, the theater development fund is great if you're doing um, anything period. Like I would always think that like the 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 cost of costumes for like a Victorian era, I don't know period thing would be astronomical, but they have so much theater costuming and a lot of it is in like that kind of period stuff. Um, it's a great resource if that's a kind of film you're trying to make. Um, that's awesome. I know that the, there's like other groups, like Facebook groups for queer, non-binary, and POC filmmakers in the industry. Um, that's how we found a bunch of our crew for this film that I'm working on. I will say this, I'm working with this um, intimacy coordinator, which I had not worked with prior, um, but was reading interviews with intimacy coordinators. It's a relatively like new position. Mm-hmm. And um, in all of these interviews with intimacy coordinators and hearing from the actors the horror stories of things that happen on set and um, just my experience with working with this intimacy coordinator already, um, I would say um, seek them out if you're going to have any nudity. Um, any intimacy in your films and other types of intimacy like uh, parent child or grieving or uh, things like that. It's like mm-hmm. um, they can help facilitate um, the set and, and making sure that it, the cast and the crew and everybody's sort of on the same page in a way yeah. that um, blew my mind. Like what, like what blew my mind how much uh, I had blinders or, didn't even know to think about certain things
1: it's a Um, multifaceted role, it seems it helps on screen off screen actors characters you know all that kind of stuff and I think Um, that I think
2: that at some point an intimacy coordinator is going to be absorbed by like SAG-AFTRA
1: similar to a stunt coordinator yeah would would be my guess be wonderful I think it's important to have, especially in the modern, yeah. like, I think that's important role mm-hmm. to have on sets, you know, yeah. especially narrative sets that have complex relationships unfolding, you know, for sure. Um, so current projects, what, what are you, what are you working on? Do you want to get out to the people. That's why you're here. I'm sure. <laughs> so
2: I am working on, I had this idea for this like queer sci-fi film a while ago. So this was when I quit the podcast. I was thinking about what's the project I want to make. And I was like, okay. How do I, you know, I'm like a total sci-fi geek and love nerd culture and Comic-Con is like, going to Comic-Con every year is like the, my, the highlight of my year. And then I'm also like a queer person and those identities always existed separately. And so I was simultaneously working on like this um, pre-Stonewall gay rights history screenplay and doing all this research about that era while trying to make this sci-fi pilot work with like queer characters. And I was like, what if I just smash these two things together and then came up with something? So it was the concept is that it's like um, a sci-fi film, but the world building, the rules of the, of everything in the sci-fi world are based on actual queer history. And so the tree, and so it's called the Robosexual, Um, and basically people that are attracted to androids are, um, that's seen as like a crime and a sickness the way that homosexuality was in like the 1950s and 60s and came up with this like, uh, script that I worked on way longer than I feel like I should have worked on for a short script, but um, I'm glad that I did it. And then we started planning, uh, the pre-production Uh, Me and the producer of the last film I worked on, uh, Femme, uh, his name is Benno Rosenwald. And then the pandemic happened and we were like, there's no way we can shoot this um, safely without taking more time and having more money. But this was also the time when uh, there was like protests happening all day, every day across the country. And we're like, yeah, we can't do a Kickstarter. That's uh, certainly not reading the room. Um, so we were like okay let's do a proof of concept which was like one scene from the film um, and that became, uh, we, originally it was going to be like B-roll for a Kickstarter once we could do one um, because uh, I know for me in like these short projects like crowdfunding is just sort of like one of the only ways I know how to like actually make money and it's that's that could be a whole podcast unto itself I would love to uh, sometime but, um, but we've finished this proof of concept i was like i'm gonna mock up some 3d effects and then eventually we'll pass it on to a vfx person um but once it was all finished like the team watched it and we were like i think this is just like is i don't think it's like it's good should we just submit it to film festivals <laughs> and so we retitled it friend of sophia um, and it's been doing a festival circuit, which is truly wild to me that it was just sort of like, it went from like, fine, let's submit it, see what happens to like, oh, it's like actually playing and, and, uh, That's wonderful. it's, it's such a weird surprise. It's weird to do it during the pandemic because it doesn't feel real. It's just sort of like, mm-hmm. um, this weird, I don't know, I time, <laughs> time is, is blurry. Uh, but anyways, now we're doing the full rest of the film called the Robosexual and we did a Kickstarter for it. And we're shooting in two and a half weeks. And um, I am so excited. It's, it's coming together super well. Having the proof of concept just made the whole process easier because we all kind of know what we're doing already. Mm-hmm. Um, and the real exciting thing, uh, which we have not said publicly, is Ooh. that we cast uh, Nana Visitor from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. She plays Major Kira Norris. Um, and so, like, she's gonna be in the movie. And I ha- haven't wanted to say anything because it feels like I'm jinxing it. Um, but we're, we're deep enough into it now where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, it's happening. Um, but it's sort of, like, became this dream project that sort of blended all of my interests over time. of, um, It involves, like, the research of history and
1: mm-hmm.
2: sort of, like, the documentary-esque aspect of working on that with the visual effects and all the 3D stuff um, and just kind of making something really cool um, and tells like a really um, heartwarming uh, queer story.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, we'll make sure to link to all that stuff. Um, and when this when Robosexual comes out in its entirety, we'll make sure to put that up as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds like a really interesting project. So Yeah, uh, I've also
2: been... Uh, part of it too is like I've been, because it was during COVID and I'm just sitting mm-hmm. in this apartment is like recording production diaries. So yeah. I stopped because pre-production got too crazy, but I've been posting it on my YouTube channel of just like little, literally every step of the way because um, one, I always enjoy behind the scenes anything. I love it. Love it, love it. Yes. And two, part of me like selfishly was like do you guys even know how much work goes into a short film? I think like short film is like, people are like, oh, you're working on a short film, but it's like, do you, it's a lot of work. Even doing yeah. a short is a lot of work. So part of, so it's like a little bit of both, but it's sort of like uh, the whole story of, of making funny. it behind the scenes, which has been fun as well.
1: That's wonderful. Well, we will have links to all your socials, your YouTube, all that kind of stuff in the description of this uh, episode and everywhere we post it and stuff like that. Um, so hopefully people will see the production diary more, more of that kind of content. Um, but I want to say thank you for coming on today. It's been a great conversation. I'd love to have you back on sometime.
2: For sure. This was awesome. I love like just talking shop. So this was like a total yeah. dream. Like I could literally <laughs> talk for hours and hours just about like, I know like you, you literally asked me about distribution and I was like, okay, so there's the air and emissions insurance Step E, let's talk about that <laughs> kind of thing. And that's yeah, we'll, a, it's we'll just fun.
1: definitely it's fun. have you on about different things like that. I'm you know, trying, to, we're playing with different concepts for um, shorter episodes, longer episodes, yeah. things like that. So I'll definitely keep you in, in mind because you have a lot of good stuff to say. Um, but yeah, yeah, so thank yeah. you for joining us today and um, we'll be in touch.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This was, this was awesome.
0: This week's episode is sponsored by my lighting company, Master Shot Films. Since 2008, thousands of productions have entrusted the MasterShot team to deliver and operate all the lighting equipment for their interviews, branded content, and social media videos. Our gaffers and key grips deliver anywhere in the tri state area. Visit mastershotfilms.com to see a virtual tour of our GE vans and to see some BTS videos of our lighting setups that we've lit over the years. Save 10% on your first booking by using the promo code NYC Video And now, let's get back to the show.
1: Okay, so thanks for tuning in to this week's episode with Alden Peters. It was great to learn about the ins and outs of distribution, as well as his takes on queer cinema and the future of filmmaking. If you want to check out his work and stay updated on his film Robosexual, you can follow the links in the notes below. Lastly, if you're based here in New York and you want to stay informed about industry news and gain indispensable advice from some of your peers, be sure to subscribe and rate our show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as this will help others find the show in their feeds. You can follow us on Instagram to see past guests and listen to episodes based in your specific area of interest. If you have any questions or you'd like us to explore a particular theme on our show, DM us on Instagram. And finally, if you're interested in running a sponsored ad for your business or you'd like to be a patron of our episodes and engage with the New York film and video production community, amazing. Shoot us an email at nycvideopodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Until next week, I'm John Sherburn. This is the NYC Video Podcast, and I'll see you on set.